pray. Lord, we're so grateful to you for your church, not just this church, this local church, but all of your people around the world today who in their various circumstances, especially our dear brothers in Kazakhstan who are experiencing tremendous um, suffering. And Father, we pray that you would especially be with them and enable them to worship you today, perhaps like they never have. We know there are very, very few Cossack believers in that country. But Father, we pray that they would rejoice in you and stand firm while the political unrest continues. Protect them, O oh Father, I pray. Help us, Lord, this morning to, to see the glory of your grace in your word. And I pray, Father, for anyone who may be here this morning who, who is pretending to be a believer and is not, that the fear of the Lord would turn their hearts to the grace of the Lord and they would be born again. Lord, we praise you, we give you thanks for this hour, and we ask you to bless it in ways that only you can, and we ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, today we make the transition into the second major section of Paul's letter to the Romans. The first section, chapters 1 through 4, Paul has explained the substance of our justification by faith alone. And then in chapters 5 through 8, Paul will focus kind of a shift of his focus from the substance of our justification to the security of our justification. The question that Paul intends to answer in this section is how can we be sure that justification by faith is enough? How can we know that justification is sufficient to bring us all the way home? Well, in these four chapters... They're kind of like a large, in my mind, kind of like a large chest of treasure that is overflowing with good news from God. And I am so looking forward to unpacking not only our text this morning, but all of these next four chapters, which I know you love. And so let's begin by, I know you just got seated, why don't, why don't we stand in honor of God's word and read our text for this morning, Romans 5, 1 through 5. Romans 5, 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith, into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. So how can we know for sure that our justification is sufficient to keep us secure until the day of Christ? 
Well, I'm confident that this is what Paul is speaking about here because he says, look in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have. We have what? We have something. And then he tells us what God has given us as the overflow of our justification. You see, justification is the essential substance of our salvation. But once it is activated, all kinds of benefits begin to bubble over to prove how secure we are in Christ until we see him face to face. I like to think of these truths as great anchors, and there are a number of them, depending on how you divide them up. Uh, They are glorious anchors for our souls. Anchors that are never, will never be hoisted, moved, or destroyed. Now, it's going to require a significant amount of time and more than one sermon to speak adequately about these anchors of security that Paul has in mind. But this morning, I, I really want to focus on one. I really thought I could do three, and then as the week went by, I thought I better make it two. And then when I realized it was Lord's Supper Sunday, we better just keep it to one. So, but there's enough in this one that I think it will do something to your heart. And I'm praying it will. I know the elders have been praying that it will. Before we dive into that, however, there is something foundational that we need to be careful not to miss. It is a biblical teaching that serves as kind of a rope that ties all the anchors together. And that rope, it's a teaching or a doctrine that is usually referred to as union with Christ. Union with Christ. Now, even though this teaching is implicit in the text rather than explicit, I really want to take a few minutes here to talk about it because it's so vital for us to know. And that's why it's, it's labeled as the first point in your printed bulletin. Uh, it's really not the first anchor, but it's, you know, I, I ran out of ideas for a metaphor. What's, what's before an anchor? I don't know. But it's certainly before the first anchor in your notes. And so I just wanted to make that clear. So let's talk about union with Christ. Well, it seems clear to me that Paul assumes his readers already are acquainted with this foundational teaching in the Bible. And the reason I think that is because of the specific language that Paul uses here to set up this text. Notice with me in verse 1. Paul says, we have peace with God, where? Through Our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, verse 2, Paul says, Through him we have obtained access. Now, whenever Paul uses the phrase, through him, or through Jesus Christ, or Paul's favorite term for union with Christ is in Christ or in him, whenever he uses these terms, he's almost always speaking of union with Christ. And the only reason I say almost is because I know my propensity to miss things, and maybe there's one out there that, where he's not referring to union with Christ. But everyone that I know of, he is referring to union with Christ. So if you're new at Calvary Bible Church, or perhaps new to expository theological preaching, 
You may be unaware of the doctrine of union with Christ. You may be unaware that it is a major New Testament teaching. And so right now, many of you may be asking, Pastor, if this is so important, please don't waste another moment to tell me. I love it when people say that. I've actually never had anyone say that, but in, <laughs> but in my imagination, it happens all the time. But it is really important. The doctrine of union with Christ tells us that believers are so intimately identified with Jesus Christ and we with him that Scripture says we are in union with him. We are united with him. He is in us and we are in him. The Lord and his people share a common spiritual life. It is a spiritual fellowship that's deeper than any kind of fellowship you can imagine. For you have died, he says in Colossians 3.3. Listen to this. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's union. Union with Christ is all about how God thinks of you as a believer. In a minute, we're going to talk about how God thinks of you if you're an unbeliever. But if you're a believer, this is how God thinks about you. And the way God thinks about you has everything to do with Jesus Christ. Now, let me make an important statement that you will want to remember. Maybe write this in your notes or in your Bible. And, and can I just take an aside here for a minute? For those of you who are in small groups, and I hope every one of you is in a small group, you should be, um, the best thing you can do for your small group, besides showing up, that's, that's number one. Uh, number two, during the sermon, take notes. And, and especially highlight things that speak most powerfully to you so that when you get to your small group, you're ready to discuss it. It, it really is helpful to the leader of your small group. I know that because I'm the leader of my small group. <laughs> so here's the key phrase. God never thinks about you apart from Christ. God never thinks about a believer apart from Christ. There is never a time, not even when you sin, that he thinks about you apart from Christ. Now, as I said last time, we had a message in Romans, which was a little while back. This, this is not something that gives us a license to sin. It doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. Sin does matter for you as a believer. Your sin will break your fellowship with God temporarily. Your sin will hinder your prayers. Your sin will enslave you if you let it go unchecked. And the New Testament even warns that professing believers may even be self-deceived about their salvation, thinking that because they prayed a sinner's prayer, that they are absolutely guaranteed to have salvation in the end, and it's not true. But I will leave that for another day. The point is, if you are united with God in Christ, God always sees you and thinks of you the way he thinks about his sinless, perfectly righteous son. Consider how Paul speaks of union with Christ. 
relative to the believer in the following passages, and I'm going to rifle through a lot of Scripture this morning. But because of your union with Christ, Galatians 2.20, Galatians 2.20, you have been crucified with Christ. Romans 6.8, you have died with him. You have been buried with him, Romans 6.3. You have been raised with him, Ephesians 5, 2, 5, and 6. And you have been enthroned in heaven with him on the seat of his father, Ephesians 2, 6. Why? Because we are united with him. God never thinks about you without thinking of Jesus Christ. My friends, the importance of this doctrine of union with Christ can hardly be overstated. Ian Murray once said, he said that union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Likewise, Sinclair Ferguson describes union with Christ as the heart of evangelical theology. These strong statements affirm the biblical teaching that everything God has for us comes to us, if it comes at all, by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. And vice versa. Everything that God the Father has given to Jesus Christ, he has given to us. And by the way, if you're familiar with Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he tells us that in the very first chapter that every believer in Jesus is in him from the foundation of the world. This is why I put union with Christ first. I said at the beginning that each of the anchors that Paul will describe for us is the overflow of our justification. But in reality, even our justification is inseparable from the doctrine of union with Christ. It is the metal from which each of these anchors are forged. Well, now that we have some understanding of these spiritual anchors uh, and how they come to us through our Lord Jesus Christ or by virtue of our union with Christ, we can begin looking at the anchors themselves. And the first spiritual anchor that proves our justification is sufficient to carry us all the way home and into eternity is, number one, peace with God. Peace with God. This is the first anchor. It's the second point in your notes. But peace with God. So Paul mentions this spiritual anchor in, in, in verse 1. He writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Now, in postmodern America, most people still say that they believe in God. That number is dwindling. The percentage is dwindling. Nevertheless, I dare say that most of those people who believe, who say they believe in God, really believe in a God who is a figment of their imagination. Or, as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, or uh, Narcotics Anonymous, it is the God of your understanding. And when people reimagine God like this, they typically make him out to be the author of all supreme benevolence. 
to everyone. He's the Santa Claus of heaven. His role in the universe is to make people feel accepted, happy, and protected from harm. But the ungodly have no category for a God who is opposed to sinners. And this is the frightening reality that sooner or later, every unrepentant sinner will have to face. Because one day, they will meet their appointment with God. And there is no missing that appointment. It is appointed for a man once to die, or to die once. And after that, it's judgment. And then how will you stand? This is a frightening reality that that all unbelievers will have to face. God is at war with sinners, and sinners are at war with God. Perhaps you're here as an unbeliever today, and you're thinking, well, I'm not at war with God. I mean, here I am. I'm in church. See me? This is me paying homage to God. No, it's not. You are at war with God, and God is at war with you. You may not be emotionally hostile toward God, as some are, but the fact is you bristle at the commands of God. And by bristle, I mean you don't like them. You would never decry them or say that they're wrong. You just ignore them. You hate his word. You have no intention of submitting to his authority. You live as you please regardless of what God says. You reject what he says about sexuality, money, marriage, church. You disregard his warnings. You have no desire to read his word, and so you do not. You think that it's antiquated and outdated and irrelevant to real life. The fact of the matter is that even while you claim to believe in God, you actually are hating God. A recent example of this, just very recently, this past week, was uh, Desmond Tutu, who recently died and was lauded as a South African Anglican bishop, renowned for his commitment to ending apartheid in, in South Africa. And for that, he was justly commended. He was considered a great religious leader who, uh, who won the Nobel Prize in 1984, but when it came to what God says about human sexuality, his opposition to God became clear, even though he was a religious leader. He said, and I quote, I would not worship a God who is homophobic. I would refuse to go to a homophobic heaven. No, I would say, sorry, I would much rather go to the other place. On another occasion, he said, if God is opposed to homosexuality, then I do not worship that God. My friends, this is not a man who had ever experienced peace with God. John 8, Jesus says of the unregenerate that, that, they are the, that their father is the devil. And by the way, Jesus used terms like that all of the time with the primary religious leaders of his day. In 1 John 5.19, the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. Deuteronomy 32.21, they have made me jealous, God says, with, with what is not a God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. 
For a fire has been kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its, its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. Joshua 23, verse 16. Because you transgressed the covenant, that is, ignored God's word, because you transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that has been given to you. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Psalm 7, verse 11, he tells us that God is indignant or angry at sinners every day. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the, finish that phrase, the wrath of God remains upon him. In Genesis, we see the wrath of God against the whole world when he sent as Jason has been preaching about, he sent the worldwide flood to judge sinners. We see it again in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God wiped out two cities because of sin. Romans 1.18, now we're in the New Testament. You say, well, this is all Old Testament stuff, right? Well, Romans 1.18, you remember, you know, how long ago was that when we were in Romans 1? Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. He writes again, chapter 1, verse 24, Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among, uh, among themselves. And you remember when we were in that part of Romans, we talked about the fact that there are different kinds of judgment, and the kind of judgment he's speaking of here, and the kind of a judgment that we are experiencing in, in America today is the judgment of abandonment. God has turned people over to their own desires. Again, chapter 2, verse 22 of Romans, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Listen, friend, as one commentator puts it, you may not be that angry with God, but God is that angry with you. You may not be that angry with God, but God is that angry at you. And, it, and right now, it's, it's just a cold war. Shots are not being fired, but the day of reckoning is coming. And people will say, but my God, my God will never say such a thing, let alone follow through on the threat of divine anger and eternal judgment. I mean, my God is tolerant and benevolent and doesn't really care about what I believe or how I live. To which I can only say that if that's what you believe, you don't know God. The ground of your theology is a mist. It is a vapor. It is a dream. It is a fantasy. But there is a true God, and we are accountable to him, and he has spoken. 
And the fact of the matter is that everyone hearing my voice right now either is or at one time was the object of God's righteous wrath because of sin. No exceptions. Well, one, Jesus. In fact, when Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he, he said this, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in your transgressions, your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, what? Children of wrath. Offspring of wrath. As... The rest of mankind, Paul says. Again, in Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, Paul says. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Revelation 14, this is the end of the Bible, when, men will, when the Lord says that men will drink the wine of God's wrath poured out full in full strength into the cup of his anger. Can I summarize all of that in a simple statement? If you reject the word of God, you are considered an enemy of God. If you re reject the word of God, he considers you an enemy of God. He's at war with men and women who suppress the truth of God, who suppress his law, are offended by his holiness, and constantly standing in opposition to his rule, even as they claim to believe in him. God is at war with you, and you are at war with him. And you may be thinking, you know, I've always wondered why the people around me seem so passionate about their love for Christ, and my heart just seems dead. I open the Bible, it doesn't speak to me. I don't hear God's speak through his word. I don't feel conviction of sin, generally speaking. It may very well be that God's hand is heavy upon you and you are unable, you are insensitive, or as Paul just said it in Ephesians chapter 2, you are dead in your transgressions and sin. And my friend, I'm here to tell you, if that is you this morning, you should be afraid. And if you are, that's good news. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Witness Psalm chapter 2, where God sets the stage or shows us this picture of enmity and hostility toward God on a macro level when he says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. In other words, let us break free from all these restrictions that God has put upon us. Let us cast their cords from us. And from heaven we hear, he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them, in his wrath, and terrify them in his fury. Beloved, this is a picture of a world governed 
by leaders who were opposed to God. And we see it throughout history. And I'm going to talk to you about some things next week. You don't want to miss this. About what's happening, happening globally against the Lord and against his church, even here in America. This is just how it is. More importantly, we see it in the historical record of how the leaders of Israel and the leaders of, of Rome in Jerusalem arrested the sinless Son of God, who they said they were waiting for as the Messiah. And when he came, they invented charges against him. They condemned him unjustly. They, they publicly gave him over to be crucified. And why did the Jewish leaders who said they were looking for Messiah, why did they join the Romans in in, in this dastardly maneuver, it was because while they were devoted to their religion, they hated God. This is the condition of every human born into the world. There are no exceptions except the one born of Mary. But nature, by nature, every man, woman, every person on earth has a natural bent against God and against his word. But now, but now, Paul says, since we who were at war with God have been justified by God, we have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because of union with Christ, which is the overflow of our justification by faith alone. For those who believe that war, the long war, is over. By the forgiving, justifying, redeeming, reconciling grace of God, those who once were at enmity with Christ are now in Christ. We are in him and he in us. And God never thinks about us like he used to think about us. As enemies of God apart from Christ. No, no. Now he thinks of us only as he thinks of Christ. He only sees us like he sees Christ. Those who have been declared righteous by the judge of heaven and earth are no longer enemies of God. For you who believe there remains no threat of judgment. He is no longer your judge. He has, by the power of sovereign grace, become your father. Someone may ask, why? I mean, upon what basis, legal basis, can God withhold his righteous judgment upon sinners? And the answer is, he can do that because he, he directed all of his wrath. All of his wrath that was justly reserved for sinners and poured all of it to the dregs upon the holy, harmless Son of God. You know who Jesus is? Jesus is the grace of God that shields us from the wrath of God. As Paul will say it in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin. Who's that? Who knew no sin? 
who, no, who never sinned. God made him, God made Jesus, sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Notice, in him. In Romans 8, then, when we get there, the great eight, the very first words of Romans 8, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are, what? In Christ Jesus. Is justification sufficient to take us all the way to heaven, come what may? You better believe it. Because in the very moment that God declares you righteous, you are instantly granted peace with God. You are instantly granted peace with God. And by the way, peace with God is not about how you feel. This is not a subjective peace. This is, a, this is an object, uh, objective peace. The peace is not about a sense of inner tran tranquility. We're not talking about a subjective feeling of peace. Rather, it's a radical change in your relationship with God. You're no longer his enemy. You are now his son or daughter. Your status changes from enemy of God to beloved child of God. And beloved, any serious consideration of, of what it means to have peace with God should make our hearts throb with broken-hearted joy. Broken-hearted because we know we deserve the wrath that he won't give us. And joy because we know we have become the objects of God's eternal love. Eternal love. Eternal life. Paul's favorite gospel term in this regard is katalasso in the Greek. It is to reconcile. To reconcile. Romans 5.11 reads, and you're in Romans 5, you can just glance your eyes over to verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 11. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Isn't that interesting? Not after we approached him and reconciled with him, but no. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, what's the next word? Reconciliation. We have received reconciliation. God has done everything necessary to reconcile with us. Colossians 1.21, Paul speaking to Gentiles like you and me said, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, he has now 
reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and above reproach. The idea here of of, um, presenting us. Paul talks a lot about this. He mentions it again and again. He envisions himself presenting us to the Father. Jesus presenting us to the Father. The Father presenting us to the Son. We'll talk about this a little more next time. But the picture here is one of, one of irreconcilable estrangement and enmity between sinners and a holy God. What hope could there be that anyone could bridge that gap between the two? And even if it were possible to bring them together, the debt that the one owes to the other is insurmountable. And that's where Jesus' substitutionary life and death steps in. In his life, he fully fulfilled all, righteous, all the righteous requirements of God's law on our behalf. And by his death, he fully paid the debt of our rebellion against him. Reconciliation between God and sinners could come only through a mediator. It's not by us alone. We are not permitted to just walk into the court of heaven, as it were. There must be a mediator. There must be a mediator who can do the impossible. He's got to, he's got to be able to fully represent God, and he, he has to be able to fully represent man. And so he had to be a person, a man, who is God. And there was only one. And he did it. And that's why Romans 5.1, Paul says, we have peace with God, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, the term peace here finds its roots in the promise of shalom. I've had the privilege of going to Israel twice now, very briefly, and didn't get to see very much, but did get to meet a a lot of Hebrew saints who love the Lord. And they still say shalom in the morning. In the morning they say bokatov, which is good morning. And I usually can't remember how to say that, so I just say shalom, and they say peace to you, brother. And this is peace, but it was the peace, it was the kind of peace that the prophets prophesied of, that when the Messiah comes, he will come to bring shalom, peace with God. By the way, just as a usage of this word, you remember the story of Jesus in the back of the boat, and the storm comes, and the disciples all think they're going to die, and they say, Jesus, don't you care? And Jesus stands up, takes hold of the mast, I imagine, and he looks over the water and the wind, and he says, Shalom. And the text says, the sea became like glass. Shalom. Peace. With God, there's no more animosity. There's no more tension. There's there's no loose ends. Some of you who are genuinely believers and know your sin, you think that God still condemns you. 
And I am here to tell you, on behalf of the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit, he only sees you through Jesus Christ. He chooses not to remember those sins against you. Beloved, this is why your justification makes you eternally secure. Jesus didn't broker a truce between you and God. No, he's established eternal shalom with God. Peace, a peace in which God promises to receive us as sons rather than the objects of wrath. And we respond by saying, okay, I surrender. I surrender. Lord, I surrender everything. Will you receive me? And if that's your heartbeat this morning, then he already has. Is your justification sufficient to bring you all the way to the Father's house in heaven? Absolutely. Why? Because the overflow of your justification is the reconciling shalom of Jesus. You who were once at enmity of God now enjoy the benefits of being at perfect peace with God. Objective peace. It's an objective peace that fills our souls with subjective peace. We know the peace of God. We experience that affection that God has put in our hearts because he has ended the war and has adopted us as sons. Is your justification sufficient to bring you all the way to the Father's house? You better believe it. It is more than sufficient. It is far more sufficient than you think it is. And the more you understand this, the more confident you will be in your relationship with God in Christ. He has done everything for you. Your justification will carry you all the way. And listen, peace with God is only the first anchor. And the Apostle Paul, moving toward chapter 8, is going to give us an anchor after anchor after anchor after anchor after anchor. Because he wants you to know how secure you are in Christ. Well, the second anchor that we will receive from the overflow of justification is access to God. But we'll need to wait until next time to talk about that. Beloved, justification by faith is proved sufficient by the eternal gifts that it secures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together to remember the things that we perhaps have been previously taught just need to be refreshed on. Thank you, Father, for refreshing my soul in these things. And I pray that that would be true of many here today and that perhaps there are some here today that you are leaning very heavily on calling them to repentance. Give them the grace, O oh Father, to respond in humility, broken-hearted humility that leads to a broken-hearted joy. We ask it in the name of our Savior and for his sake. Amen.